You are listening to the Passion City Church Podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Levi Lesko. You're no good Samaritan. In, in our day, that phrase, good Samaritan, has become something very different than what Jesus kind of originally intended for it to be. I mean, if you look it up in the dictionary or even in like the urban dictionary, I mean, it's got its own urban dictionary thing. Uh, it's, it's more basically something anyone does that's nice for a stranger unnecessarily. Now, obviously, there are people who, who do incredibly heroic things for, for strangers, people they don't know, people they'll, they'll never be rewarded by. I mean, you think about lifeguards, you think about um, firefighters and first responders and paramedics. And, you know, I have a good friend who he literally jumps out of, repels out of helicopters into floods and avalanches and, 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 and rescues people. And he does this all for free, doesn't take a, a paycheck. It's just incredible. There are people who, who do incredibly kind things for strangers. But, but it's also become sort of like just like, you know, someone does something kind for a stranger in a, in a small way. And it's like, oh, man, it's a good Samaritan. There's still goodness in the world. Like the other day, I left my wallet uh, in a parking lot. I didn't know this. Uh, anybody with me, though, you can't leave your wallet in your back pocket while you're driving. It's just like some sort of like man code. You just got to like pop it in the dash or the, the side you know, compartment. Or when I'm really lazy, it just ends up on my lap or between my legs. And, and I guess I got out of the car and it, it must have fallen out because, you know, an hour later or so, my phone rang just as I was looking for my wallet, actually. And it was someone from our church saying, hey, we got a call from the store. You left your, your wallet there. So I go back and I go, where was it? Was it in the store? She goes, no, it's just a parking lot, right? Which is just so embarrassing because that means I literally like stepped over it on the way out of the car. And I, I said, did it a store employee found? She goes, nope. She goes, uh, just, just, just a random person shopping, you know, good Samaritan, you know, and that, that, that's sort of like, you know, kind of how we would use that phrase today. We, we, we sort of, let's just, they did kind deeds for strangers, you know, just good person, just, just grab the, grab the wallet, you know, and what a good Samaritan. And, and while I'm incredibly thankful they didn't steal the cash or my credit cards, mostly because I didn't want to ever have to go into the DMV without, you know, it it expiring, because that's just the worst thing that's ever been, FYI. Uh, Even in Montana, you know, they just have found a way to make that experience just uh, painful. But, but, but when Jesus talks about a good Samaritan, that's, that's not what he means. It's not just like a nice thing done for a stranger uh, out of the kindness of their heart. And in fact, the purpose of this story originally wasn't to inspire this guy. It was to enlighten this guy, to put a mirror up to this guy, to show him. The point of the story was to show him, you're no good Samaritan. You're, you're not as good as you think you are. And the man was a lawyer. That's what the text called him, a teacher of the law, which is not so much like the defense attorney who helps you in a trial that you're in before a judge. This is a religious figure. He was an expert, uh, a seminary teacher. He was someone who, who knew better than anybody what someone had to do to inherit eternal life. And he spent his entire day and night every day thinking about and trying to live out what, what does God require of us? What does one have to do to achieve wholeness? What does someone have to do for God to be pleased with them? What does someone have to do to to take part in the resurrection? How do we get to heaven? That's what this guy spent his his life doing. And that's why he came to trap Jesus. That's how another translation puts it. I had you underline the word test. 
Uh, many other translations say trap. He came to trap Jesus, to trick Jesus. He and the rest of his colleagues heard Jesus preaching this message of the kingdom, this easy believism as they saw it, this loosey-goosey, doesn't matter if you're a prostitute, doesn't matter if you're a tax collector, doesn't matter what you do. If you just believe in Jesus, eat his flesh and drink his blood, whatever that means. Look at the, the, the Son of Man lifted up on the cross like Moses lifted up the serpent. He didn't have to keep all the laws, didn't have to fast and pray twice a day like they did, didn't have to be you know, too sexy for their shirt, religious speaking, religious speaking, all you had to do is believe in Jesus and you could be forgiven. And they were just nauseated by this message of grace that Jesus preached. Nauseated because the gospel doesn't allow you to be the hero of the story. The gospel always puts Jesus in the role of Superman. And you are always, you and I are always in the role of damsel in distress. He's the one who swoops in and save us. He was the one who does all the heavy lifting. And, and they didn't like that. They wanted to earn their keep. They wanted to be able to do something, to be proud of it, to live such a holy life that God has to look on from heaven and go, well done. I choose you. You are so good. I'm so lucky to have you on my team. And, and, and so they wanted a sort of religious experience that allowed them to puff up their chest and, and shine uh, their, 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 their merit badges. And so they did not like this. And that's why this dude thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show Jesus a thing or two, right? FYI, he's in big trouble. A man came to test Jesus. It's like, oh boy, this is not going to end well. And so it's a battle of wits. And they're trying to figure out who's got the poison in their glass. It's Princess Bride style, right? I know something you don't know. I am not left-handed. So this guy says, how do you inherit eternal life? Thinking that Jesus would say, well, all you have to do is believe in me. That's how you can inherit eternal life. At which point this man plan to spring the trap on Jesus and bash him over the head with the Ten Commandments and point out 25 ways from Sunday how the law and Moses validated what he said and not what Jesus said, which of course was not going to work. So Jesus hearing the question, how do I inherit eternal life? All he did was say to the guy, I don't know, what's the law say? At which point the guy's like, you can't use Moses. Moses is my star witness. And, and so now he's on his, his heels and he's like, uh, <coughs> I wasn't preparing that, prepared for that. So he goes, uh, well, you got to love God with all your heart and you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. So to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. If, yeah, of course, if you, if you could do that, then yeah, you would inherit eternal life. Love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself. Do, he, Jesus said then, I love it. You have to see it. He said, um, do this and you will live. Verse 28. If you can do that, you will live. Which of course is like a backhanded compliment because there's a barb inside of it. And Jesus saying, do this and you will live. He's insinuating that the man has not done that. If you could love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself, then yes, you would be justified before God. Of course, you have not done that and no one is capable of doing that. So it got awkward. Jesus says, do that and you will live. And the guy goes, now, what exactly is a neighbor? Right? Like none of us really know. Like it's a super nebulous thing. Who is my neighbor. Like when you say neighbor, you don't mean like everybody 
who, who, who do I have to love like I love me? Because there ain't nobody that we love so much as we love some me. And so Jesus responds to that question. The, the man had asked him, who is my neighbor? With a, Socrat a Socratic method style argument. He answers his, his question with a question and then a story. And then he'll end it with another question. And so what he does in this famous story, the, one of the greatest stories ever, ever written, was he now is going to use this story to show the man, here we go, you're no good Samaritan. But instead, he lets the man find himself in the story when he says there was a guy, presumably a Jewish man, who was heading from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, most likely the man lived in the Jericho region, kind of a palm tree area, nice and cool. And he had gone to Jerusalem to worship or on a business trip. But coming back home, he was attacked by robbers. Now, this particular stretch of road, everybody, as they heard the story, were, was like right there. Like a, when they heard him say a man was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, I'm sure they were all thinking in their minds, Hopefully he was not alone. Hopefully he was not unarmed. Hopefully it wasn't too late of night because this place was dangerous. It was known to be a place where you would get mugged, where you would get, you know, cart camel jacked, right? And, and, and so uh, 17 miles was how long the road was. And it was so notorious as being a bad part of town that this stretch was nicknamed the way of blood. And he says, not only was the man robbed, but they beat him and left him half dead lying on the ground. But fortunately, as it happened, and Jesus says this no doubt with a twinkle in his eye, right? Oh, now you believe in luck, Jesus, right? Fortunately, it happened uh, to be that a priest came by, right? It's like every joke you've ever heard. So the priest walks into the bar after the guy gets mugged and, uh, and sees the man. And of course, a priest would be the number one most likely person to help out in this situation. There's a Jewish man lying there struggling to breathe. He's in danger. A priest, a man who represents God, a, a man who's supposed to be known for compassion. He's coming along the same way. No doubt has just finished a whole course serving as, as a priest in the temple. And, and so full of heavenly thoughts, no doubt this man would have sprung to his, his aid. Only the text says the priest seeing the man went to the other side of the path. Now, I've, I've seen this path. I've walked this path. It is not a wide path. It is a very narrow serpentine type path. And, and so for the priest to avoid the man, he would have had to go out, like stepping over the man to get out of there as quickly as he could. And then a Levite, a worship leader. So Christian Stanfill passes by and, 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 a, and, a, and a Christian wouldn't have, he would have helped. The, he would have had a first aid kit. He did put the guy on his shoulder. He would, have, he would have carried him for sure. But the Levite did not do this. The Levite got out of there as well. Now, both the Levite and the priest literally were God's hands and feet for benevolence. As people, as they would bring their tithes and bring offerings to the temple, they would steward over and, fund, and manage the fund that would help people. And so they were literally like the best shot. There's no one more likely to help than these two men who both by nationality and by profession were obligated to help. But they did nothing. And I'm sure they had a million reasons why. We've been serving God. Now we need to get home to our families. Or if we stay around, this, this might, the robbers might be, it might be a trap. They might have left this guy here 
so that someone would come to help him. And while we're helping him, they'll come out. They'll get us to you. If we die, look, who's going to serve God in the temple? So it's, it's in the greater good that we don't help this guy. We got we to gotta get home. And, and so they did. They did nothing. But Jesus says, and this is where it starts to twist, then a Samaritan came down. Now the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. And there was intense rivalry and intense, you know, we're better than you, even though they before, long before were, were from the same family. It was a split off and, and a feud. And, and the, the Samaritans said you're supposed to worship this way. And the Jews said you're supposed to worship that way. And so they just really hated each other. And, uh, and this man coming down, it would have been for everyone here in the story, like, oh, gosh, a Samaritan. What is he doing there? Uh, in, in the Jewish prayers, and there were different prayers you would pray every day. This became a part of their tradition. There were certain prayers you would pray. And a normal Jewish man in this time would have included something uh, along the lines of, and I thank you, God that there will be no Samaritans in the resurrection. And that would have been a, a normative part of their prayer life. I, it's difficult to even help you understand how much Jews and Samaritans disliked each other. Even Jesus' own disciples didn't like the Samaritans. And they were always confused because Jesus would just go to Samaria and minister to people and, and stay there. And you know, he, he, in John 4, met this woman by the well in Samaria, defying cultural uh, bigotry as well as uh, gender stereotypes and, and, uh, and sexism. And he would just minister to people, didn't care where they were from. Of course, he's building a, a church from every tribe and every tongue and every language. And so the, Jews, the disciples were always confounded by this. One of my favorite examples is just in the chapter prior. So this is Luke 10. We're reading this story. In chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus sent the disciples to go to Samaria and get ready a place for him to stay. He goes, I want to stay there on my way to Jerusalem. Get, get me a place. Get, let's find a hotel and, and do it. And they went and no one would rent a room for Jesus. No one would, would rent them a space for him to stay. So they came back to Jesus and they said, hey, we couldn't get any caterers to get food for us. No one would take our money. They don't want us in Samaria. And here's their response. This is James and John. So not just disciples, like two of like the top three disciples of them all. Luke 9, 54, they said, Master, do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? Would that be good? And Jesus said in the next verse, of course not which is just hilarious to me. Here, look, imagine Jesus like hearing them. Uh, they wouldn't rent us a room. You want us to torture them all? Call them the F-16s? Get some angels down here? Burn them to death? Little, little Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0 here in Samaria? And Jesus is like, I actually, um, I, don't, I don't want you to do that at all because the Son of Man did not come to take life, but to give life. But that at least helps you get a picture of the divide here. And so after the priest passes by and the Levite passes by, the Samaritan comes. And the Samaritan did three things that I want you to take note of. This is how we change the world. He took notice, he took pity, and he took action. The text says he saw him. And that's where it begins. We have to see the problem. We have to open up our eyes to see people in need. We have to open up our eyes to see crisis. We have to open up our eyes. We have to be willing to, to, to not only take notice, we have to also be willing to take pity. The text says he took pity on the man. He saw him. And no doubt everything in his head told him, this guy wouldn't help you. This guy wouldn't care about you. But he chose to feel. This guy's a human. 
This guy's a person. This man has worth. What if it were me? And that's the key. It's empathizing. It's putting your, your feet into someone else's shoes. It's asking those difficult questions. What would life be like for me if I were raised in that home, in that part of town, with those conditions? And when he took notice and was willing to take pity, he was on his way to becoming like Jesus. Because the Bible says of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows and he was the weeping prophet. He was acquainted with grief. And one of the most common words used to describe Jesus's emotional state was compassion. Which you're like, oh, that's a nice soft word. No, the word in the Greek for compassion is splanchnizomai. And it actually describes when, you're, when your stomach's just in knots, like the way you would feel if someone was describing to you something horrific. This person got sexually assaulted or this, this child doesn't have a mom or a dad. You would feel that in your stomach. You would just feel a great burden. You would feel great sorrow. That's how Jesus felt because he took pity on people. He took compassion. And the Samaritan, when he saw his enemy lying there and was willing to, to say, what would it feel like to be beaten and, and robbed and bludgeoned and be drowning in your own blood, he took pity. But that's only a start because the next thing he did was the most crucial. He took action. He took action. And what did he do? He, he, he got off his donkey, came, the text says, down from his donkey. Not just coming down from Jerusalem, he came down from the donkey as well. And then he, he, he took oil and he took wine, which would be essentially a disinfectant and an ointment. It would be like hydrogen peroxide and neosporin. And he bandaged the wounds and he did CPR. And then he put, he put the, 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 the sick injured man on his donkey. And now off they go. The man is where he should be and he is where the man should be. And he leads him to and in, not just giving the resource it would take to buy oil and wine and bandages, but, but also the opportunity cost of he should be on his business trip. We know he has to be somewhere because eventually he tells the innkeeper, look, I got to go. I actually was, was I'm two days late now for this meeting because I've been nursing this man back to health. And so he, he gave the time and the inconvenience that it would take to, to be here present with this man, encouraging him, praying for him, a complete and total stranger and his enemy when the man comes to He's going to be horrified that he's been helped by a Samaritan, but he was willing to take action. He bought the backpacks. He was doing the grove swap. He was engaged. He was giving. He took the time off to be a door holder at the Passion Conference. I mean, this, he had things to do. He runs a company. He could be doing anything. He's a CEO, a high power, but now he's serving. He, he cares. He's engaged. If we will take notice and take pity and take action, I tell you, God will use us to change the world. But that is not the point of the story. You see, because this isn't a sermon about, OK, let's go be like that good Samaritan. All right, come on, you know, you, you twisted my arm enough. I'm willing. OK, I get it. You know, I missed last Sunday, the above and beyond thing. Everybody was giving. And I kind of intentionally watched Elevation last week. And I'm going to get back to this because I'm like kind of curating my spiritual existence so I can watch this sermon a little bit and that sermon a little bit. And whenever, you know, the pastor's talking about something I don't like, I can just, you know, that's a great Sunday for Pastor Brian Houston. And, and you know, it's like, but now I'm back because I thought the, the giving was over and I didn't really want to hear that pressure. But OK, 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 you got me. Me. All right, I'll write a check. I'll do, I'll do my part. Okay, I, I get it. I get it. Move on to a, to a different topic. And 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 no, no. Listen, this sermon is not. You need to be a good Samaritan. This story was told to help this man see, you're no good Samaritan, 
and neither am I. That's the point. This is not about us. Let's just try a little harder, a little motivation by guilt. You're right. I should throw a little bit there in the offering to help get the rest of whatever is in the vision plan done. This is not about that. You see, this man was being told that the only way to go to heaven by his own admission is to be so good and to love God so well and to love your neighbor so selflessly that you love him more than you love yourself. And who the neighbor is, is every person you've ever hated. Okay, listen to me. We don't love the people who love us as well as this man loved the one who hated him. The point of this story was so that the guy with desperation would realize it's impossible. Who then can be saved? He, would, he, was, he was hopefully going to come to the place Paul would describe in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The point was for this man who started out so smug, going, Moses is on my side, to realize Moses is actually in Jesus' corner, ready to deliver the knockout uppercut, and for him to be gasping, going, how can I be saved? So that Jesus could come in with the line that the man thought he would lead with, which is, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Blood. Trust in me. I'll do it for you. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one who came down from heaven. He's the one who came down descending from the donkey. He's the one with oil in one hand and wine in the other hand. Wine speaking of his blood, oil speaking of the Holy Spirit. Not only the cost of the forgiveness of sin, but the Holy Spirit that's able to come upon us and energize us and animate our dead parts. You see, this story is not about don't be a bad guy, love like a good guy. It's actually you're a dead guy. And the God guy came to do what you could never do. He found you when you were half dead, dead spiritually, but alive physically, hanging on in the gutter, unable to help yourself. And he was willing to bandage you and put you where he should be by becoming where you should be. He was willing to go into the earth to bring you up out of death into life. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He is the only one who can help us. This message isn't meant to lead us to a place of walking out the streets of Atlanta or DC or wherever you live going, I need to be a good neighbor. No, this sermon is hopefully going to get you to come to a place where you go, I need a good neighbor. And Jesus is willing to be that for you. And that is why he came. To get the red out of our ledger, to get a pulse into our our heart, to get breath into our lungs. And once you've had that revelation that you are the guy in the street, that you are the one who's lying there, the, the, the only logical thing to do is to find yourself in the story, in the place where God wants you to serve. And that's always the key. Like when you read a, a Bible passage, like, who am I in the story? Who, who do I relate to? Am I, am I David or am I... Am I Goliath, right? Am I, am I, am I Peter or am I James? Like, who, who am I in the story? And, and I would say that that's, that's complicated. Because when I read this story, I know for a fact that I wish I was a good Samaritan. But that's Jesus. I, I know that, sadly, I'm often Levi and the priest, missing the opportunities that, that God wants me to take notice and take pity and take action on. And I think I have been and I was the man in the gutter bleeding out saved only by the grace of God. But where I think that God's spirit is calling us all to see ourselves in the story is in the role of the innkeeper. 
Come on, say it with me. Hotel, motel, holiday inn. That's where God wants us to be serving. Where Jesus brings people to us. He, he's, listen, it's this, this message isn't putting the pressure on. Like, okay, I got to muster it up. No, no, this message takes the pressure off. God's not calling you to save the world or me. His son has come to do that. But anyone his son brings into the inn, brings into the church, brings into this house, we then are to be that innkeeper springing in to do what Jesus has already been doing, which is doing the, the, the first aid, doing the help. And then listen, listen, we are then to, to do what Jesus said the innkeeper was to do until he returns. How can you not see Jesus as the Good Samaritan when he says, I will return. And when I do, I want to find you aiding and serving and, and helping those I came and descended to save. So we're then to take anybody Jesus brings to us and we're to do everything we can do to help them, to serve them uh, to, to wholeness. You see, because only God can forgive sin and we find forgiveness of sin when we come to God in prayer. But the Bible says that through each other's prayers, we can become whole, we can become healed. Ask God to forgive you, but confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. We're meant to be in the Passion City house in the, the work of the in business. And I love this because in this season, we're not a big Marriott hotel tower. We're Airbnbs all over the world. These houses where we, as government laws will allow, we can invite people into our homes to watch the broadcast together. I was telling Archer the other day, I don't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus who's clamoring for the church to reopen. Not one person who's not a Jesus person, wanting the churches to get back to gathering. All the people who really want the church to come back to church as normal are saved already. But the people in our lives who we can say, hey, look, our church isn't gathering because we want to prioritize the good of the city. We want to serve people. So we're, we're not gathering. But if it's allowed, we can have you over to our backyard and put this program on. We can have you over to our home and let you live the gospel out as we feed you and as you watch this, this message. It's an amazing thing for us to see ourselves as Airbnb inns all over the place, extensions of the Passion City House to bring in those who the Good Samaritan has brought to us that we might show love. If we're to be the, the innkeeper, what do, we, what do we need to know? Two things, these are our two big takeaway points and then we're done. We need to remember that number one, whatever we have, we've been given. Whatever we have, we've been given. The Samaritan handed the innkeeper two denarius, which essentially boils down to 60 days in an inn. There's that, the archaeologists have found signs with the, the rates for staying at an inn in that day. And it would cost 1 32nd of a denarius. So we gave him a lot of money, which tells you this guy was really sick. Here's two months stay. Now that innkeeper was given that money for a purpose. Use what I've given you to help this man. Okay. Everything God has given to us is from him. He owns it all, the breath in our lungs, the talents we've been given, our opportunities that we've had, the schools that we got to go to. You're like, no, I'm a, I'm a self-made man. I would just say to you, which part of yourself did you make, man? I think everything we have is a gift. And the tithe acknowledges that. Every time I receive a gift, if I give the first and the best back to God, I'm telling him, you own it all. You've given me everything. I honor you as the owner. I'm the steward and I'm returning the first and the best that there might be food in your house. I want to see Cumberland full. I want to see the broadcast go out. I want to see the Passion Global Institute raise up the next generation of leaders. I want to see the Passion Conferences point a generation to his fame 
and to his renown, to living as a part of a bigger story. I honor you, God. Do your work with what you gave me that I might bandage a wounded world. But I don't stop there because our second takeaway truth is whatever we give will be rewarded. Technically, tithing is not giving. And I know sometimes we, we, we use the terms interchangeably, but it's kind of important. The Bible never one time, look into it, uses the word give to speak of a tithe. Because God says the tithe is mine. What does the Bible say about a tithe? It always says return. Return the tithe to the Lord. So when I bring the tithe, I'm returning to him what he says is his. Giving starts once tithing has already been done. So to, to, to an accurate degree, if, you've not, if you're not tithing, you've never actually given anything because only uh, do we bring offerings once the tithe's been given. But this man was told, give this man this, this two denarius to, to treat him. But if, it's, if it costs more than that, what you have in your heart, what this man needs, whatever you spend above and beyond that, it's up to you. Use your imagination. I'll reimburse you when I return. Listen to me. Jesus said, I'm coming and my reward is with me. What is he going to reward? Whatever we do above and beyond the things that he's called us to do. It's so much as we dream up, like, God, I want to say yes to the vision. I want to accelerate the vision. I want to help pay off debt. I want to get ahead. I want the church to be the head and not the tail. Whatever we give above and beyond that to the extent that we have the vision that the world needs wine and the world needs oil. Wine, your sins are forgiven. Oil, the Spirit of God will come upon you. I want to see you do that in this world, God. So above and beyond, I'm doing that, knowing when you return, you'll be blessing. You'll be rewarding me for what I've done. Now, I'm not doing it for that, but you've promised you're so good that above and beyond whatever I do, you'll reward me above and beyond that. And I love this revelation because it points us to the fact that our good deeds then aren't done to earn God's love but they're done because we have God's love. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that like Charles Spurgeon said, what the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us. It's so powerful because it's like this guy thought I'm going to earn God's favor by loving him and loving my neighbor. But if I think that way, I will always think minimum requirement. What's the minimum work I got to do? How long does the paper have to be? How, how many times do I need to show up? If it's doing it to earn something, it will always be how little can I get away with. But when you're motivated by grace, the question is, how much can I accomplish? I don't have to do any of this. And it will never change God's opinion of me. And it will never make me look better or worse in his sight. Therefore, I want to do more. I want to reach this whole generation. I want by the time they're carrying my bones, I want to have given everything I have for the gospel to go out. I want to live this great story. I want to set the next generation up. I want to raise up more people. And what will we find? We'll find him there to reward us. And in the process, our lives will be saved. Not saved from the penalty of sin. That's settled at the cross. I'm talking about saved from being wasted. Wasted. What's a wasted story? A story where you live for yourself and not for the bigness of God's glory and his work in the earth. This is Jim Becker. Came across the story, inspired me so much. Jim Becker was a diehard fan of his Green Bay Packers. Problem was, Jim and his wife had 11 children. And he could not afford to go to the games. But there was a blood bank he discovered that would pay him $15 every time he gave a half a pint of blood. And so he went every single time there was a home game. 
and he gave blood and he sold it and he cheered the Packers on, gave blood and sold it and cheered the Packers on. And he did this for 56 years. This is him being inducted into the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame. What he did not know all those years, all those times sitting there giving his blood to sit in that seat was that he had an often fatal disease called hemochromatosis, which is essentially where too much iron builds up in your body. And they estimate he would have been dead by 45. He did not know he had the disease. Do you know what the treatment protocol and the only known cure for hemochromatosis is? Giving blood at least once a week, which he did for 56 years. He did it because he thought it was putting him into a seat. What he did not know was this was saving his life. Jesus said in Luke 6, and we're done, give and it will be given to you. Give away your life and you'll find life given back, but not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting is the way because generosity begets generosity. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.